Hello, and welcome to Linux Action News, episode 141, recorded on January 19th, 2020. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you, but unfortunately, we start things out with some somber news. Yeah, Mark Greaves, who was the Peppermint Project lead, sadly, is no longer with us. It really sucks anytime we lose anyone in the community, but it, it really hurts when it's someone who was pretty well known and was responsible for a project that people really enjoy. I hear really good things about Peppermint OS. Mark went by PCNet Spec online, so you may have interacted with him as that. And uh, we uh, pass our condolences on to his family as well. Yeah, and indeed the whole community. As you say, he was extremely well-liked. I never had the pleasure of meeting him, unfortunately, but from the tributes that I've seen, he was a really good guy. So this is uh, just a terrible, terrible shame. The hits keep rolling with some bad news from Mozilla this week. It appears they've done a rather significant round of layoffs. Yeah, it looks like they're going to lay off at least 70 people, potentially even as many as 100, depending on how things go. And a lot of those are engineers and QA people. So this is really not good at all. The silver lining to the story is on Twitter. I saw a lot of people responding to the announcements from individuals who were laid off with job offers. People that have worked at this organization for a while and gotten to a certain level seem to be perhaps hot commodities. So hopefully there's, there's at least some that will land pretty quickly. It appears that this all really comes down to a slower than expected move to new revenue sources. Mozilla chairwoman and interim CEO Mitchell Baker specifically mentions the slow rollout of the organization's new revenue generating products such as subscription services. Quote, you may recall that we expected to be earning revenue in 2019 and 2020 from new subscription products as well as higher revenue from sources outside of search. This did not happen. Well, who could have seen that coming, eh? Yeah, that Google money was pretty nice. Of course, Mozilla was under a lot of pressure to um, get off of that revenue source. She goes on to say our 2019 plan underestimated how long it would take to build and ship new revenue-generating products. Given that, and... All we learned in 2019 about the pace of innovation, we decided to take a more conservative approach to our project and revenue for 2020. We also agreed to the principle of living within our means of not spending more than we can earn for the foreseeable future, i.e., that's boss speak for reductions. Now, I guess these uh, reductions come with generous exit packages and, as they always say, support and outplacement. Yeah, and for the staff that are in the UK and France, both those countries have pretty strict labor laws, which mean you can't just fire someone immediately. So that's where the uncertainty about the numbers comes from. And they will probably get pretty good packages kind of by law. So it's not a complete disaster, but it's still not very nice for the people involved. I hope and I assume they must be doing an internal analysis about why things didn't meet their expectations and launch at the pace they expected. I'd like to hear that they're getting their hands around that. That, I think, would be the ultimate resolution. But I just have a random question, because they're, they're looking at VPN solutions, they're, they're looking at all these different ways to, to generate subscription service, and they're trying to change the Firefox brand to be more about privacy and protection. And Would you be willing, as just a straight-up subscription, to subscribe to support Firefox development? It's not a VPN service, it doesn't get you cloud storage, it just pays for the development of Firefox. Maybe it gives you access to something else extra. 
I don't know. But it is fundamentally just a way to pay for Firefox. Would you, Joe Resington, personally do that? I'd like to say that I would, but I don't know if that's really honest. I don't know. I'd I'd have to see that proposition in front of me and see how much it was. I, I could do that right now. I could donate regularly to them, but I don't. So probably not. True. True. I wonder if it was as easy as it is to sign up for a VPN service if people might not just add it on. Or, you know, support Firefox development add-on to some of these other existing subscriptions, sort of bundle it in there for a small price. Because fundamentally, I just want a good, secure browser that I can trust and that is putting the user's needs first. We need that as a balance in the marketplace, more so than ever. So fundamentally, I really hope they get this sorted out. You know, we used to joke about how much money Mozilla had back in the old days, but things are not looking so great. They even considered shutting down their innovation fund but decided that it it needed to stick around in order to keep actually discovering new products that they could monetize. (laughs) But you are not alone in wanting them to double down on the browser because that seems to be the consensus in the community from what I've seen. They just wish they'd stop messing around with all these side projects and just concentrate on the browser, the core product which to some extent they have and they've made it better and more competitive with Chrome but it's just not working, is it? So maybe if they did only do the browser, then they'd just dwindle away to virtually no market share, just a few people who really care about freedom. To channel my former inner small business CEO, I think I would have to ask you the question of, isn't this the exact human cost we pay for Google dumping on the market? Not to be anti-Google about this, because fair enough to them, they were in a position to leverage their success to guarantee some some security in the market. They had every right to do that. But by taking something like Chrome and making it really freaking great and investing who knows how many millions, potentially billions, into staff, R&D, testing, commercialization, advertising, branding, they have essentially an endless supply of money they can dump into this thing to make it a market dominator. Plus, they were able to come in when technology had progressed in a, in a significant way from when Firefox was originally conceived. So they started very competitive, and they had the resources and means to do it, and then they made it free. And they made the back end open source. So it fundamentally dumps all of the value out of the market. Firefox can't charge $15 per download. That'd be ridiculous. In a marketplace where you've got so many browsers that are all now based off of essentially WebKit and Blink, they can't be the one-off with their weird Gecko engine that charges $15 for a download in 2020. It's just not even possible. Because they're up against something like Chrome or now something like Edge, which this week, the old version of Edge faded away, and it's now a Blink-based Edge world. And it's all WebKit and Blink, essentially. Yeah, which is why it's so fundamentally important that we have a competitor to it. But yet they can't charge for the product. And if they fail, we essentially have lost the people's advocate in web browsers. You're making me want to reconsider my decision not to donate to them now. I think you're doing a pretty good sales <laughs> job here. I got to say, they sell, they sell some nice swag, too, so it's something to consider. All right, well, let's cheer things up a little bit with NextCloud's huge announcement of NextCloud Hub this week. NextCloud Hub, Hub, Hub. Yeah, well, it's it's NextCloud 18, really, but they've gone through a bit of a rebranding 
to signify the significance of not just the improvements, but also the new integration of -of out-of-the-box apps. Well, actually not quite out-of-the-box, shortly after-the-box apps. Yeah, it's a curious approach where apps get installed straight after you install the main software. I don't know why they don't just bundle them. I suppose a couple advantages would be you get the latest version, and then that app developer gets some stats, gets a sense of how many people actually have it deployed. Yeah, and I suppose if you had an older version, it'd have to be updated anyway, so you may as well just not bother, make the initial download smaller, whatever. But this is a kind of coming together of a lot of what they had been doing previously with a little bit added on and a rebrand. It's a fairly clever strategy because it got a lot of attention. Names matter, and the way people think about things matter, and this changes the way people think about it. And the thing that I've definitely noticed in the conversations around this news story is it's clearly positioned as an Office 365 slash Google Apps competitor now. People are clicking, oh, I could replace a bunch of these commercial cloud platform services with NextCloud. When when it lacked a couple of things, I think it just didn't click. When you when you position it to NextCloud Hub, and they change how they talk about it a little bit, it better represents the full scope of the project now and its full capabilities of what it can replace from commercial providers. I think it's working. People get it more. The biggest new feature is the integration of OnlyOffice because they had Collaborate as an option before, but now they're putting OnlyOffice front and center. And so you can have a Google Docs-style experience and also have really good compatibility with Microsoft's Office 365 so I can see how that's attractive to people, especially as you can run this on-premises and be in complete control of it. I'm not a user of OnlyOffice, but my understanding is, is they market it as 100% compatible with Microsoft Office formats, and I think its native file format is XLS, X, and uh, XDoc, or whatever it is. It doesn't use, it doesn't use um, the open document format. Now... Like Joe said, the key thing is is you can throw this on a NextCloud box on your LAN and have something that, in my opinion, has a better UI than Google Docs. I don't think the overall product features are as competitive, but if your needs are centralized, easy go-to collaboration in something that has a UI that's, I think, kind of nicer than Google Docs, It'll do that. I think it lacks some features that heavy Google Docs or Office 365 users would want, but this sort of walks that line of probably solving it for 80% of people out there. Well, as long as you don't have a high-resolution monitor and want to zoom in, that is, because I do that in Google Docs, and it, it all resizes perfectly, whereas in the only Office demo that I tried, it didn't resize properly at all. It just it made it all blurry and weird, so... I wasn't very impressed there, I must say. Yeah, I mean, it's a different market. There's a lot of Office competitors. We talked about free Office not too long ago in the context of Manjaro. This is a this is a market, and people want to solve this in a way that works for a large portion of users. And if you can deploy something like this on a server, even if it's not perfect, if it solves it for a lot of the people or the majority of the people, and you're not necessarily having to pay Office licenses, it's great. I will point out that I believe the absolutely free version of OnlyOffice may have some limitations. They have a pay version that you can license. I I couldn't tell you more than that, so you might just want to do some research. The the limitations may be completely acceptable or may not exist, but it is worth looking into. When I did some research, it appears 
at least from the documentation I could find, that there's somewhere around a 20, 25 concurrent user limit on the free version. That's pretty nice. And, uh, you know, really, if you if you got more than 20 users, it's, it's probably time to pay for the thing anyways. There are some other new features, of course. They've got a nice-looking photos application, which is new. And also, they've rewritten the user interface for talk. And that's all integrated in nicely. So it's, it is looking pretty good. I am keen to try it. We're going to have to uh, upgrade our current 17 version and maybe try some of these features. Well, Huawei has some new features that they desperately want developers to try. Yeah, this week at an event in London, they revealed more details about their Huawei mobile services system, or HMS, which is a direct replacement for GMS, Google Mobile Services. This is all wrapped up in the political wrangling and the trade war that means that they can't really bundle Google services, so they need a replacement, and it looks like they're pretty much on track to do that. Can we just appreciate the scope of what they're trying to pull off here? They're they're trying to convince developers that they can ship a compelling Android system. Not just developers, consumers, obviously, carriers. But they're trying to convince a public that they can make a competitive system running on Android without Google services. It's the very situation that Samsung ended up making a massive deal with Google, if you'll recall, years ago to avoid even though they've kept their own independent apps, they've they've never been able to pull that trigger because they're afraid of how the market would react. That's my assumption. Well, Huawei claims that they've already signed up 55,000 apps using the HMS Core, which is free to register for, and there's different developer kits will issue you depending on what you're doing for free as well. And they say their app gallery currently is attracting 400 million active users. So that's pretty significant, but... When you consider the scope of what they're trying to pull off and the fact that those numbers are not validatable, Huawei is the sole provider of that data source, and we don't know exactly what qualifies as an active user or how many developers are actually creating applications, so they're just touting the best-case scenario. But even given that, they seem to have gotten more traction than I even thought they would get to, and there appears to be some momentum based on the results of that event they were at. The thing is, though, do they really care about the Western market? ultimately. That's kind of what I kept thinking about while I was reading about this, that the Western market is pretty much saturated at this point. And okay, yes, it does have a lot of value to them, but would they really miss it? Because the real growth markets are in China and India and countries like that. I think it matters, even if it doesn't directly matter to them. Because for this to be successful, they need other OEMs to support their AppKit APIs, their development kits, the whole Huawei app system, because you need these to be cross-device applications. Uh, for an example, um, Huawei is working on a replacement for an Android's Quick App feature where it'll download the parts of the app you need. I mean, they're really looking at rewriting large portions of what Google provided. So they've created something called Huawei Quick App, and they acknowledge that they want this to be a new set of standards. And right now, they've already got 12 major Chinese handset manufacturers to support it. Now, the reason why that matters is that group of Chinese handset manufacturers represent more than 35% of the global market, so outside of China as well. That's a way they can get broader adoption without just being limited to Huawei devices. I think it's a necessary part of their strategy to attract developers. 
Well, you could have a point there because Huawei is investing £20 million into the UK and Ireland with some developers able to claim up to £20,000 for apps uploaded to the Huawei gallery by the end of the month. Yeah, that's interesting. They're really trying to attract developers in that market. And Huawei's approach to the press was, yeah, we're in this position now, but strategically, we, we needed to solve this anyways. It's just been accelerated. This is something we need to get done. Well, another company that's been very strategic when it comes to the platforms they support is Valve. And it looks like Steam may well be coming to Chrome OS at some point soon. Yeah, last week, David Ruddick, writing over to Android Police, spoke to the director of product management for Google's Chrome OS. So this is an exclusive, and it's coming from the product manager. They say the Chrome team is working, possibly in cooperation with Valve, it wasn't said directly, but it was implied, to bring Steam over to Chromebooks via the Linux compatibility that already exists. Um, But it's not clear on exactly what that would mean, if that would also mean perhaps improving some of the performance, because right now you could install Steam already. It just runs horrible. Even if you were to play on a Chromebook and you just replaced Chrome OS with Linux, it runs much better under Linux. There's some limitations in the 3D acceleration performance in that Linux compatibility layer. And it was implied, although we don't have a direct quote, that that would change, that we would see Chromebooks especially Chromebooks with AMD processors coming. My first thought on this was the current affordable Chromebooks, at least, do not have the power for this. But then you start to think about the kind of remote play stuff, and it suddenly makes a lot more sense. Well, honestly, that's why I was surprised to see this, because Chromebooks seem like the perfect candidate for Stadia. They don't have dedicated graphics. They're mostly a cloud-based device. They're pretty solid for that kind of thing, and it really kind of is the perfect target market. You can't even play games. You don't have a graphics card. Let's introduce you to this subscription called Stadia. And I thought, look at that beautiful captive market they have. And then Google goes along and says, all right, yeah, we'll work with Valve to bring a gaming competitor to our platform. I mean, I'm very happy to see it, but I am surprised. And I guess you could just use it for game streaming, but you put a Chromebook with a little bit of gaming performance in there, I think it would work. Students like to game, and parents will spend the money. For Christmas, I got my son a used ThinkPad. Uh, It was, you know, not, not super expensive, but one of the requirements was that it needed a dedicated GPU because he wants to play the video games. And so if we see some Chromebooks coming with dedicated AMD graphics or whatever, then this might suddenly make a lot more sense. I would have had to ask myself, what do I get him? Because he uses a Chromebook every day at school. They just, here you go, kid, get a Google account and uh, use a Chromebook. Uh, you don't need that pen and paper. And it's been like that since he was like in very early days of school, very, very, like, very early days. And so he really knows how to navigate that platform. He's, you know, he's like the go-to support kid in class. And so there would be a lot of advantages to giving him that same environment at home. I don't know if I'd do it. I prefer a ThinkPad with elementary OS. It just works super good for him. And guess what? We installed Steam. First thing we did, I loaded him up with a bunch of Steam games. Um, So I, I think I still would have made that choice but I could see a lot of parents going the Chromebook route. And definitely if their other alternative was going to be a Windows 10 laptop or a $1,000 plus MacBook. Even a $700 Chromebook is a good deal in in that kind of market. And the other thing too, Joe, is 
as Dylan gets older, let's say he keeps using these Chromebooks for all the way through high school. When he graduates, if they have continued to evolve the platform and its capabilities and hardware feature set, maybe it would make sense as an adult when you buy your first computer to just buy a beefy Chromebook. It's kind of the Apple strategy, isn't it? Well, I can see that future panning out, definitely. But in the short term, this has got to be good news for Linux. It's going to attract more people over to the platform. It's using the Linux technologies within Chrome OS. It's using Vulkan. So that has to be good for the wider platform beyond Chrome OS. Yeah, in the meantime, we're doing pretty good on the desktop Linux side. Over the holidays, I was able to just sit down for a bit and really appreciate the range of games. And with the real kind of confidence that just about any game I feel like playing, I can play on desktop Linux right now. It's it's pretty great. But whatever happens with that story and all the stories in Linux and open source, we'll let you know. Just follow right here every single week. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And if you haven't checked out linuxheadlines.show, you've got to give it a go. In three minutes or less, every weekday, we'll tell you what happened in Linux and open source in a nice, concise, get right to the point manner. I think you'll be really impressed. linuxheadlines.show. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Rissington. Thanks for joining us. And we will see you next week. See you later. See you later.